actually, Bombay is my home. I, I live in Delhi only because I have to. Uh, <clears throat> and this novel is, is set in Bombay. <clears throat> uh, just a brief introduction. Serious Men is about uh, two men. One of them is Iron Money, who is from a caste, uh, which is more res uh, respectfully called the Dalit caste now. But earlier, they were the untouchables. The other upper caste, as they are called, they wouldn't touch them. Uh, and, uh, these, uh, they, they were supposed to be invisible. Uh, but uh, Iron Money now emerges into uh, modern India as a person who is uh, who's extremely bitter, uh, but also very poor. <coughs> and this is how the uh, uh, novel begins. Uh, Iron Money is walking down a promenade uh, on, uh, in Bombay. <coughs> Iron Money's <coughs> thick black hair was combed sideways and parted by a careless broken line. Like the borders, the British used to draw between two hostile neighbors. His eyes were keen and knowing. A healthy moustache sheltered a perpetual smile. A dark, tidy man, but somehow inexpensive. He surveyed the twilight walkers. There were hundreds on the long concrete stretch by the Arabian Sea. Solitary young women in good shoes walked hastily as if they were fleeing, fleeing from the fate of looking like their mothers. Their proud breasts bounced, soft thighs shuddered at every step. Their tired, high-caste faces, so fair and glistening with sweat, bore the grimace of exercise. He imagined they were all in the ecstasy of being seduced by him. Among them, he could tell, there were girls who had never exercised before. They had arrived after a sudden engagement to a suitable boy, and they walked with very long strides as though they were measuring the coastline. They had to shed fat quick, quickly before the bridal night when they, when they might yield on the pollen of a floral bed to a stranger. Calm, unseeing old men walked with other old men discussing the state of the nation. They had all the solutions. A reason why their wives walked half a mile away in their own groups talking about arthritis or about other women who were not present. Furtive lovers were beginning to arrive. They sat on the parapet and faced the sea. Their hands strained or eyes filling, depending on what stage the relationship was in. And their new genes were so low that their meager Indian buttocks peeped out as comas. Ayn looked with eyes that did not know how to show a cultured indifference. He often told Oja, who's his wife. If you stay long enough at serious people, they will begin to appear comical. So he looked. From behind, a girl with a bouncing ponytail and an iPod strung to her ears overtook him. Through her damp t-shirt, he, he could see her firm, youthful back. He quickened his pace and regained his lead over her, and he tried to look at her face in the hope that she was not pretty. Beautiful women depressed him. They were like Mercedes, Blackberry phones, and Seaview homes. The girl met his eyes for an instant and looked away without feeling flattered. She had a haughty face that would be a pleasure to tame, with love, poetry, or a leather belt, perhaps, whatever she liked. Her face did not show anything, but it did grow more cold. She was aware that she was being watched, not just by a strange, brisk man, but also by the unending 
hordes of miserable people all around who spread dengue and scratched her car. They were always there on the fringes of her world, gawking at her the way stray dogs look at good stock. It's the first part. I'll be reading three more small uh, uh, portions from the book. <coughs> now, Iron Money, from, from the promenade, he goes home, which is, uh, which is a hellish place. Uh, it's called a chawl, which is very unique to Bombay. These are tenements. Uh, one-room tenements with uh, common bathrooms, uh, which the Britishers had built for the homeless about 85 years ago. Uh, but it was so bad that even the homeless refused to move in. Uh, they preferred to live on the streets. And the Britishers, they, they converted into jails to, to Shavin freedom fighters. Uh, but over time, uh, the Chols have become a bustling residential colony. Uh, there are about 80 ident identical buildings. Uh, they're grey and they're kind of pretty, uh, pretty horrible, actually. And Ayan lives then in, in a one-room home. Uh, as he's making way, he just uh, describes the world around him. It's a very short paragraph of, of, uh, of what he sees inside Vidi Chow. <clears throat> Even though the men here loved Ayan through the memories of a common childhood, he had long ago cut himself off from them. He laughed with them always, lent money, and on humid nights, chatted on the black, thar-coated terrace about who exactly was the best batsman in the world, or about the builders who were interested in buying up the chawl, or about how Aishwarya Rai was not very beautiful if she were observed closely. But in his mind, he did not accept these men. He had to abolish the world he grew up in to be able to plot new ways of escaping from it. Sometimes he saw bitterness in the eyes of his old friends, who thought he had gone too far in life, leaving them all behind. That bitterness reassured him. The secret rage in their downcast eyes also reminded him of a truth which was dearer to him than anything else, that men, in reality, did not have friends and other men. That the fellowship of men, despite its joyous banter, old memories of exaggerated mischief, and the altruism of sharing pornography, was actually a farcical fellowship because of what a man really wanted was to be bigger than his friends. Now, uh, actually what happens now is uh, Ayan goes home and this is his routine of his evening. He, Oja, his wife, is, is, is a very beautiful woman. He's totally in love with her. Uh, they and their son, Adi, uh, who's 10 years old, uh, they live in a one-room flat, and, and the plot of the story is very simple. Iron Money, he wants to escape his reality, so he wants to promote his son as a genius, as a fake genius. And uh, one strand of the novel is how he promotes his son as a mathematical genius. Uh, but Iron has a sexual problem, which he calls marriage, actually. He, uh, <laughs> he describes uh, himself as someone who is in the, is in the rod of a good marriage. Uh, there is a lot of love, but he does not understand why his wife is not as horny as him. <laughs> he knew the freedom of a batch. Sorry. Uh, so what, what happens is, as, as always, uh, he, he tries to do something, and uh, uh, Oja does try to. She, she does her duty, or she, she, she attempts. But it's a one-room flat, so sometimes their 10-year-old son wakes up and sits very studiously and watches them. <laughs> and he he always complains that the others don't let him play this game with 
with the other girls in the in the flats. And and Ayan is very disturbed, and he he feels that as a couple they should sacrifice their pleasures so that their son is not polluted. And Oja immediately accepts the proposition, and Ayan starts thinking very deeply about his life and uh, what's wrong with his wife. <coughs> He knew the freedom of a bachelor is the freedom of a stray dog. On such days, when he felt stranded in family life, he always invoked the memory of the evening when Oja had first walked into his home as a terrified bride. She was so beautiful, and her fear was so arousing. But on the first night, when he sat beside her on the conjugal mattress that was filled with funeral roses left by the neighbors and friends, he discovered that his new wife had cut her arms and legs with a topaz blade. She had done it very carefully and methodically so that she did not damage her wings. She wanted an excuse to be left alone. It was her way of saving herself from being undressed by a stranger. I was afraid was the first thing she ever told him. Of what? he had asked, and she looked even more frightened. Ayan had read that a woman had to be ready, whatever that meant, so he decided to wait. Sometime in the second month of their marriage, Oja's cousin was sent by her mother under the guise of a casual visit to check if everything was all right. In the middle of churning curd, the girls talked about private matters. He has not done it yet, the cousin screamed. Something is certainly wrong with him. She spoke of the dark thing that looks half-eaten, that nailed her even before she could give her man his milk on the wedding night. It was big and it hurt, the cousin had said in a whisper. I walked like a spider for two days. Ayan did claim his rights soon, one Sunday afternoon when Oja was sitting on the stone floor cutting onions. When it was over, Oja looked up at the ceiling, an onion tear running down her cheek, and asked, somewhat disappointedly, that's it? Then unexpectedly, she lifted both her legs and pressed her knees to her face in a curative exercise. The first year of the marriage went, went by in their endless chatter about things they no longer remembered and in the moments of loneliness that sometimes bore the gloom of exile and at other times the sweet isolation of elopement, and in the infrequent physical love through which Oja maintained a calm, interested gaze, and in Ayan's perpetual knowledge that a box of condoms in their home outlived a jar of pickles. During that time, he had a nightmare that he would never tell Oja. He dreamt that he was summoned by God who looked exactly like Albert Einstein, but highly illuminated. God asked him, why did you get married? I answered earnestly, to have sex any time of the day or night. <laughs> God looked at him with a thoughtful face for an instant, and the creases of a smile appeared. The smile became a laugh, and the laugh burst into echoes. Men and women on the streets too looked at Ayn and laughed uncontrollably. People who were dangling from the doors of a local train threw their heads back and laughed. The motorman stopped the train to laugh. Fish sellers in the market covered their mouths and laughed. Even the framed portrait of Jawaharlal Nehru held his stomach <laughs> and laughed until the rose fell from his buttonhole. <coughs> now, this is the last part that I'll be reading. Now, this is the with the characters already introduced by the states, this is the second character, who's Arvind Acharya, he is an astrophysicist. Uh, he is obsessed with the theory that microscopic aliens are falling all the time 
on Earth. <laughs> and uh, he wants to find a way to prove it, and he wants to send a balloon 41 kilometers above the Earth uh, to capture air and show that uh, there are microscopic aliens falling all the time. Uh, Iron Money is Acharya's private secretary. That is the connection between these two men. Now, this is Acharya's morning. He's this grand, old, gracious, uh, upper caste, uh, Brahminical man living in Bombay. <clears throat> that morning, Arvind Acharya was lost in the unreasonable joy of trying to solve an old, intractable problem. Did time move continuously like a smooth line, or did it move in minuscule jumps like a dotted line? He was standing on the narrow balcony, nine floors above the ground, and glaring at the Arabian Sea. The summer air was still. A crow on the wooden railing began to hop sideways, hop sideways towards him. He was wearing a blue track suit that had a white tick mark embroidered at the hip, as if he approved of something. It had been sent by his daughter in California, who wanted him to go on morning walks. Such things that came through courier, he now grudgingly conceded as love. Some days, when he was not contemplating a difficult problem, he remembered Shruti fondly as the little girl who on a distant afternoon had looked up nervously and asked if maths was important in life. He had lied, no. He might have liked to see her more often than when she decided to visit. Probably, he stood in the tracksuit every morning not to succumb to the indignity of exercise, but because it was touched by his girl and dispatched in a packet on which she had written his name in her beautiful handwriting. Yet, he never really craved to see her. The success of an old man lies in not wishing for company. <coughs> company sir. The sun was growing hard. His eyes, which were the color of light black tea, softened a little. He smiled too. The excitement of the time problem was making him hold the railing and rock gently. That was when a steel tumbler with the unmistakable fragrance of Madras filter coffee was shoved towards his chest. His surprise was so operatic, it drove away the crow. The strands of abstract geometry and physics collapsed. What remained was the question that had woken him up at dawn, as it did on many dawns. His wife, for 42 years and forever his email password, held the cup <laughs> calmly in one hand as she watered a, a dying creeper with another. She looked tall and lean even in the oversized t-shirt and pajamas. Her clear skin was stretched out over a bony face and she had large dancer's eyes that men mistook as curious. The kind of woman about whom young girls would say, she must have been beautiful once. Her dyed hair was short and thinning once it was rich and flowing and she used to tie it up in majestic arrogance before a fight. Fight with him, that is. <laughs> She moved in a smooth, delicate way, as if there was liquid gel in the, in the joints of her bones, and she was as womanly when she nudged him again with her elbow, ordering him without uttering a word to take the steel cup, unmindful of the fact that she had delayed one of the answers science sought the most from one of the few men it could ask. He looked at her in disgust, but she was not wearing her glasses. Lavinia Acharya yawned and pointed to a duster on the wire above and asked him to get it. His height was so useful. But when her mother had first met him with a silver plate full of moist fruits, she had said with a sad chuckle, this boy is taller than a Gandhi statue. 
Acharya pulled down the dust cloth from the wire and gave it to his wife, muttering to himself that he had no peace in his own house. He then continued to glare at the sea. She studied him fondly. He was dressed like a football coach and just as furious. You wear these things every morning and, this, uh, and then just stand. Why don't you go for a nice long walk, she said. A twitch appeared on his face. He didn't turn. Oh, and yes, she says, <coughs> I didn't tell you. Remember Lolo, her husband died last night, heart attack. Acharya abandoned the problem of time. The news of death, any death, interested him these days, especially the widowhood of her friends and cousins. These women began to glow, grow healthier after the departure of their men. Their lugubrious eyes filled with life and their skin began to glow.